It's good to see you guys this morning. Uh, my name is Tony. I'm the, the privilege of serving as pastor here in this place. Uh, if you're new, visiting, checking us out, welcome. We are glad you are here. Uh, if you are a kid and you would like to hang out with some other kids, uh, Miss Jessica is over there. Why don't you go line up with her and she will take you over to your rooms. And if you're a teenager, middle school, high school, and you'd like to hang out with some youth, Hanson is over there. He'll lead you over to some uh, youth hangout awesome time. If you're an adult and you'd prefer to do that, it is really good. Feel a little jealous. So just a uh, full disclosure, I told my kids not to make a tent in here, a little fort, but they did anyway. Sorry about that. Uh, just kidding. I'll get to explain what this is later. Um, and the guitar, Chuck, I'm just going to move this so they get f- the full experience. There they go. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. For right now, I just wanted to share briefly uh, about this coming week. So... One of the things that's nice if you live in a house, like an actual house with walls, is the walls kind of protect you from like the crazy deer in Pacific Grove. If you live around here, my wife got chased by one last week. Um, Raise your hand if you've been chased by a deer or stalked by one. See, she's not alone. It's crazy. Anyway, so I'm thinking about sort of walls and buildings and such, because this week I'm going to go on a little backpacking trip and You know, if you've been car camping, you're used to like a tent and there's walls. But if you go backpacking far enough, you often don't even want to bring a tent because the tent is too heavy and you're so concerned about reducing weight, right? So I'm going to be sleeping in this thing called a bivy sack, which is basically like a sock that goes over a sleeping bag, right? It also happens, I'm glad my wife's, my family's sick, so my wife's not here, so don't tell her. But the place I'm going also is like known for lots of bears, And so I'm sort of in this moment of like terror of like, I don't have walls. There's actually more bears in this place than others. It's like, great, here we go. Now I share this story for the simple reason that we are in chapter six and seven going to be enter, or seven and eight going to be entering in sort of a season in the gospel of John called Tabernacles, where Jesus is going to this festival and they're living in these shelters, these permeable shelters where they're reminded that their true shelter in life is God. Right on my camping trip, we'll see if I become a person of prayer. Probably depends on how many bears show up. But for them, right, once a year, they would go and they would build these shelters and they would live in them to remind themselves that God is their shelter and that he is the one who protects them and is their presence and their guide. Now this morning, as we sort of lean into chapter six and seven, or seven and eight, uh, the beginning of chapter seven, we're going to go through verses one through twenty-four. The first one through thirteen is sort of Jesus dialoguing with his biological brothers, and then fourteen through twenty-four is him at the Feast of Tabernacles. We're going to divide it into two sections, just to I think it's a little easier. So I'm going to start with one through thirteen. This is how it reads. After this, Jesus went to Galilee, or went around in Galilee. He did not want to go around or about in Judea because the Jewish leaders were there looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore, Jesus told them, my time is not yet here. 
for you any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I am not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. All right, so that's 7, 1 through 13. So if you remember verse 1, it's like people are trying to kill him. Now, if you've been with us, you know, we spent five weeks, I think, in chapter 6. You might not remember in chapter 5, uh, 518 actually is where this death threat started. Jesus heals a man who's unable to walk, who's at a pool, but he does this healing on the Sabbath. People are really upset about this. So they actually start to think, we're going to kill this guy, right? So this is sort of the heated controversy that's now continuing in chapter 7 as Jesus comes back to Jerusalem. Now we learn in chapter 2, or in verse 2, right, that we're not celebrating Passover anymore. Chapter 6 is all in the shadow of Passover. It's springtime, right? They're in the wilderness. There's all this stuff about the bread, right? Jesus as the bread of life. It's all within the frame of Passover. Now it's spring. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. There's three primary pilgrimage festivals in Judaism. Uh, there's Passover, happens in the spring. There's Pentecost that happens in the summer. And then there's Tabernacles, which happens in the fall. The thing that's interesting is Tabernacles is the most attended of them all. Because if you are a poor laborer and you want to go to the pilgrimage festival in the spring, it's hard because you're in harvest, right? In the summer, it's hard, Pentecost, because you're in harvest. But now the harvest is over. It's Pentecost or uh, it's Tabernacles. So then this is the most attended. The most people come. If this is a map, gives you some distance, right? So that's Capernaum. That's where chapter six ends. Uh, Jerusalem is down there. That's 85 miles, right? So that's if you picked up your water bottle and walked from here to Mountain View via the 101, okay? That's 85 miles. So it gives you some sense. This isn't a day. This is not chump change. This is more than my backpacking trip coming up, right? So Jesus probably used a bivy sack. Anyway, the point being, there are three pilgrimage festivals. This is tabernacles. Uh, in Hebrew, it's called Sukkot. One of the things to know about it uh, is that it was celebrated every year, uh, and it was commanded in the book of Leviticus and other places. This is what Leviticus says. Celebrate this as a festival to the Lord for seven days each year. Live in temporary shelters for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in such shelters. So your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in temporary shelters when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. Right, so big picture here. God has them live in these shelters. I actually had my Jewish-Israeli neighbor verify that this one was legit. So we got the stamp of approval. Uh, but they would live in shelters like this to remind them, right? that God was the one who rescued the Hebrew slaves out of Israel or out of Egypt under Pharaoh and led them through the promised or led them to the promised land but they had to walk through the wilderness for 40 years. In Numbers 9 it says there's a cloud uh, during the day, right, that they would follow. And sometimes it was a day, sometimes it was a week, sometimes it was a month, sometimes it was a year before they would move. Right? And they would live in these temporary shelters dependent on the timing and the movement of God. 
Now, as we sort of lean into tabernacles, there's three primary things that are to become really important as we lean into chapter 7 and 8 in the teaching of Jesus as it relates to tabernacles. First is this, the teaching of God was emphasized during this feast. So if we look at Deuteronomy, it says they are supposed to read the law during tabernacles. Secondly, when you get into exile, when the, Babel, when the Jewish people return from exile, you read in uh, Nehemiah, they rediscover the law and they reread it, right? So this becomes a time when they refocus on the law. And we're going to say that Jesus in this text starts talking about his teaching, right? So this is in the context of tabernacles. Two, uh, in chapter eight, we're going to see that Jesus is talking about this idea of the living water, right? And this water he offers. One of the things they do at Tabernacles is they take uh, a pitcher, right? They take like a pitcher, let's say like this, they go to this pool, the pool of Siloam, and they pick up the water and then they go back to the altar and they pour the water on the altar as a say of their cleansing. And Jesus is going to talk about living water in the context of the cleansing that happens at Tabernacles. Three, what happens is they have these golden candlesticks, And in chapter 8, Jesus is going to talk about how he is the light of the world as they are lighting candles, these golden candlesticks. So what we're going to see over the next two weeks or three or four weeks, something like that, is that Jesus is going to be using symbols and images from this feast to talk about who he is. All right, so that's the basic sketch of Tabernacles, what's going on. Now, what I want to look at is this first section, so now we're getting into verses 3, is this dialogue that Jesus has between his brothers about going to this feast. It's pretty interesting, right? So the brothers are like, dude, show yourself to the world. Like, you're a public figure. You gotta go, you know? And this is the most attended of all the festivals, right? This is the best opportunity. Get yourself on the stage. Show yourself. Jesus is like, guys, you you're missing it. This isn't my timing. Right? Jesus is all about submitting to the timing of God. He's not as focused on being this public figure, being known. He wants to align his life, his heart, his actions, his words with what the Father is saying and where the Father is leading. Right? We see this uh, throughout the Gospel of John. Jesus is saying, hey, you know what? What I do is I speak what the Father says. I do what the Father does. That's how I align my ministry, my hope with him. Now, it might be odd. You might be like, is Jesus lying to them though? Like, let's be honest, right? He says he's not going and then he like goes in secret. What's going on there? Well, you see, if you've journeyed with us for a bit uh, in John, is that Jesus often does this actually in John. Someone asks him something and then he says, no, I'm not gonna do it. And then he goes and does it. And it's this basic principle in John. We see it in John 2, right? The wedding at Cana. Mary says, fill these wine, fill the water, make it into wine. This host is going to be ashamed. And he's like, no, 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 my time's not here. He waits like five seconds. Then he says, okay, now do it. Uh, C.K. Barrett has this great quote. He says this. He refuses in the plainest terms to comply with human and unbelieving advice acting with complete freedom and independence with regard to men, but in complete obedience to the Father. Right? You have the brother saying, go, make us, you know, be a public figure. And he's like, no, God has not invited me yet. Now we see that he does go, though. In verse 12, it says, there's whispering 
right? No one knows he's there, but they're whispering about him. In Greek, this word has a couple nuances. It could be like uh, restless muttering or undercover talk, right? They're sort of trying to feel things out. Some people like him. Okay, he's a good guy. And other people in this phrase is actually really loaded. They say that he's leading people astray. Now to us, we might think, okay, you know, maybe he's got his theology a little wrong, uh, but that's actually not what this is getting at. Deuteronomy 13, one through six says this, states that a false prophet must die because he spoke so as to lead you astray from the Lord your God. So you have people that like him and you have this other undercurrent of people saying, man, this guy maybe needs to die because he is leading the people astray. And it's here in verse 14 that Jesus shows up. It's day four of the festival, right? It's eight days. He shows up day four, halfway through. And this is what he says. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You're demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who's trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you were all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though it actually did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath, so the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. All right, so we're four days into the festival. Jesus has been sleeping in a a booth, a tent like this, probably cooler, uh, but this one's pretty cool. Um, Right, he's been sleeping here. They've started talking about the law. They're focused on it. And then Jesus dives right in. Now the crowd's response is amazement. So we have to sort of lean in one second just to how rabbinic discipleship functions in the first century. So it's kind of like college applications a little bit. So there's rabbis out there and rabbis don't choose you. You choose, you sort of like ask a rabbi, hey, can I be your disciple, right? So if you're applying to Harvard, you try and get to Harvard. Same kind of thing happening in the first century. There's like the Harvard rabbi, the Yale rabbi, the, you know, whatever. And you're trying to get into whatever, like the status school out there. So you go to Jerusalem, you have the rabbis and their disciples and they're like, well, my rabbi, you know, professor at Harvard says, and the other guys, well, my rabbi who says, right? So they're in this dynamic. And Jesus starts teaching freshly. He's not just quoting what Rabbi X said to Rabbi Y, right? He's saying, no, 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 this is what the father told me to say. So Jesus has this freshness. There's this amazement. And then the elites, the leaders are kind of scandalized a little bit because he's undermining their system for you know, prestige and authority. Now, if you were born in like, let's say, if you're like in your mid-30s or above, you'll probably get this reference. If you're not, I just feel like super old. Anyway, it reminded me of the scene in Goodwill Hunting. It's like 97 or 98. If you were born, if you're like 20-something, you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. So there's a guy named Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. 
um, before they become like big names is their first movie. Uh, it's not in black and white. Anyway, the point is there's this bar scene. And in this bar scene, he goes to, Ben Affleck goes to pick up on this girl. And there's this Harvard uh, student who comes in and he starts quoting all these like ancient his, or historians about the South. And then Matt Damon comes up to him and he's like, dude, you're just quoting all these people. Like, does that make you feel powerful? Maybe in 50 years, you'll wake up and have an original thought, right? And it's like, boom, you know? And it's kind of that feel. Jesus comes in. He doesn't have a Harvard diploma. He doesn't have a a Yale diploma. He is not discipled by the best rabbis around. He's learned from the Father, and he comes in, and he's like, hey, I am just trying to teach what I've been taught. His goal is not status promotion. His goal is the glorification of God. Now, at this point, right, Jesus is like, God told me. And you basically have two choices at this point. You either dismiss him as crazy or some sort of false prophet, or you have to take him really seriously. Now, those of us who've been around Jesus a little bit, we kind of get this feel, this sense of connection he has with the Father, this intimacy. You know, he says what the Father says. He does what the Father says or does. Right, and then he makes this crazy claim in verse 17 that like, hey, if you were really interested in God and not just your status, you would actually be able to discern the Father's will and you would know that I am from God. Pretty crazy challenge to their system that is focused on status. And he's like, hey, I don't care about your status stuff. All I care about is aligning my heart and life with the kingdom of God. Right, and this is what he gets at in verse 18, which I think is a beautiful verse. He says this, whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of him who sent him is a man of truth. There's nothing false about him. And we know, right, Jesus is sent by the Father. Jesus is basically saying, hey, I'm not here to increase my reputation. This is why when my biological brothers came, I didn't say, all right, I'm on. I'm going to show myself to the world. I'm going to become a public figure. No, no, Jesus is all about glorifying the Father. He is all about aligning with the heart of the Father. But Jesus knows, right, there's detractors in the room, in the audience, right? In verses 19 through 24 about him addressing these people who don't believe he's from the Father. They actually think he's subverting the Father by undermining the law revealed in the Torah, right? So this is the basic argument he makes. In, in first century rabbinic circles, right, there was sort of this, uh, they had this way of understanding logic, the, the weightier to the less weighty or the, less, the lesser, the greater to the lesser. And they basically had this idea that, hey, circumcision supersedes Sabbath when they collide. On the eighth day, Hebrew boys are circumcised. If that day falls on a Sabbath day, what wins? Right, do you move circumcision now to the ninth day? What do you do? First century rabbinic circle says, no, the Sabbath is lesser, circumcision is greater, so you circumcise the boy on the Sabbath even though it violates the Sabbath. Make sense? This is like normal within his audience. So then he says to them, all right, if you can circumcise a boy on the Sabbath day to obey God, 
Surely you can heal a man who cannot walk via the power of God. So he says, right, you know, stop judging by mere appearances. Stop reacting to what you see. Stop. Judge. Slow down. Like if you take the time to think about what God is doing right now before you, you'll realize that something profound is at play. Right, this is how Jesus' tabernacle teaching begins. Jesus is invited by his brothers, pushes them back, says, no, no, my timing's not here, right? Then he shows up, he starts teaching. Who's his teaching come from? It comes from the Father. He's not about personal glory. He's about the glory of God, honoring God, the creator of all things for his due. Right? And then he gets into this last thing about the law. And what does it look like to please God? Now, if we were going to sort of then lean into how does this text translate 2,000 years later into our lives so it has an impact on not just Sunday morning, but what you do on Monday when you go to work, when you're changing diapers, when you're going about the rhythms of everyday life, how does this text speak in to our life today? I think the first question I would ask you is, whose timing are you living within? Right? One of the things that stands out in today's text is that there's a timing difference between Jesus' brother, Jesus' biological brothers, and Jesus. Any time is good for them. They're pragmatists, essentially, right? They look at the world like this. All right, Jesus, you lost all kinds of followers in chapter 6. Do you remember that? People are abandoning you. Look what's coming up. It's tabernacles. This is the most attended festival of the year. You want to be a public figure, Right? Go to tabernacles. Show them how good of a teacher you are. You'll attract crowds. Do it. It's actually pretty rational. It's not like insane. It's actually quite reasonable. And Jesus says to them, so what? That's not my point. My my goal is to listen to the Father's voice, to align my life and heart with the Father. God hasn't said to go yet, so I'm not going. He isn't concerned about his status. He's concerned about God being honored and glorified. Right? And we live kind of in this, like, I don't know, I, I think I could imagine this text being applied in a few ways. One is sort of neurotic, like, okay, I can't schedule anything because I got to be open to whatever God might do. Like, no schedule, no plan. I'm going to sit on a rock and wait for God to say, go, you know, and it's like, okay, I'm ready. I have zero commitments, right? But I don't think that's the point. But living within the timing of God, within the heart of the triune God, isn't about doing nothing so we can be available to do anything. It's about listening. It's about tuning our hearts to God's voice. You know, make a plan, make a schedule. Sure, take a vacation, but let's also be the kind of people that attune our hearts to the speaking voice of God. I think there's three questions that I thought of this week that I think I would just invite us to be thinking about on a regular basis. This is the first one. What is the Father's invitation to you this week, this month, this year? Do you know?
Right? Like when you make a plan, when you make a schedule, is there any part of you that says, all right, God, this is my best? Do you have something to say? Or are we just like so gung-ho and like making the best as we see fit and just sort of running with it? Because I think there's some part of us that if there's an appropriateness to saying, all right, God, this is my best, what do you have to say? What is the Father's invitation to you? And the second question is this, what isn't in your schedule that the Father is inviting you to consider? Like you already got a bunch of stuff on your plate, right? What are you missing? Is there maybe something that God would say, oh, I wonder where this is. It could be about you. It could be about your parenting. It could be about the way you are a coworker. It could be about, I don't know, prioritizing anything. I, I'm not sure what it is for you. This is about listening. What is the speaking voice of God saying, oh, I love all these things you're doing. I love your heart for these things. But maybe, maybe shift a little here. And then three is, you know, what's the Father doing within you? And how does that affect how you spend your time? Right? We can sort of operate in terms of externals. Like, do this, do that. But I think even more importantly, it's like, what is God doing in you? So I grew up in a world, a context where like, for me, worth was often determined by external performance. So when I came here to do this replant, right? Like I had sort of, you know, there's all these sort of pressures and different things. And sometimes I would get to this place where I would allow sort of sort of lean into this sort of false belief that my worth was dependent on my ability as a pastor to make this church somehow successful. And what that does in me is it creates this anxious striving, the sense of like, I need to work harder and I need to work harder because if I don't, I'm going to be a failure, not as a pastor, but as a human being. And as I've sort of been in this place for the last year and a half what I just keep hearing Jesus saying to me is like, Tony, you got it all wrong. Like, I, I love you. Not because you are good at what you do. I love you. Not because you're a good dad or a good pastor or a good student or a good worker, but I cherish you. Sometimes God wants to do something in us. And in order to actually have that thing happen, give birth, that change happen internally, it actually affects how we spend our time externally. So for me, actually, as the pressures of this replant have gone up, I have actually had to spend more time leaning into the presence of Jesus, cultivating intimacy with Jesus so that I don't believe the lie that I am about my performance, that I am actually a child of God, that Jesus' death was for me, that I am sort of so saturated in the grace of his presence that I can fall on my face time and time again and say, hallelujah, Jesus, that I am not defined by the way I behave, but my identity springs forth from your grace and love for me. What is the Father doing within you? 
How does that affect how you spend your time so you can allow that thing to give birth? We are here in this place at Wellspring because we want to be people that are like Jesus. Jesus says in this chapter, he says, hey, if you take God seriously, God will reveal that his way, his will, and you'll be able to see Jesus clearly. Maybe just one story um, about timing. Uh, So when I came here, one of the things that stood out to me was there's this church has 28,000 square feet. It's like crazy, you know? If you haven't seen it, there's a basement, there's upstairs, there's a building on the other side. Crazy, right? And so from the very beginning, like we've leveraged it as much as we can, right? So we've had 10, 15 different nonprofits have been using this space. Um, and from the very beginning, I have wanted to figure out how to leverage it, not just for nonprofits, but like uh, one of the things about PG is it's a primarily white privileged place. And I've been trying to think of how do we leverage this space actually across racial lines, across ethnic lines, across economic lines. What does it look like, God, to do that, right? Sunday morning is one of the most, or Sunday in particular, is one of the most segregated days of the year. Like, what does it look like for us to participate in a kingdom, leverage this space, right? So I've been praying about that. I've been trying to figure out everything I could to do this, right? Last week, someone sends me from this place, sends me this little article about a church in Seaside that's like going to lose its space. They're over at Fort Ord. And they're like, they're going to lose their space. It was in the Monterey Herald. So I call them and I'm like, hey, you know, uh, just, I heard you guys might be losing your space. Just wanted to see if we could help in any way. You know, we have this huge building. Anyway, so this was Wednesday, I think, of two or three weeks ago. And um, I talked to the pastor on that Friday and he tells me, you know, we had this thing going where we were going to be in this church, but it fell apart the, the Monday before I called him. And he says, I'm wondering whether God has something here, right? So I called him, we've been in talks, and I've learned through the conversation that they're, uh, you know, more, more on the side of a, uh, a small African-American church. And they're partnered with a small Samoan church. So we've been talking about what would it look like for us to leverage this place to serve God's greater kingdom using the assets we've been given. I have tried for a year and a half to do this. Nothing happens. Within a week, I'm like, what is going on? There's like, you know, maybe two other churches will be using this space, you know, just out of nowhere. The timing of God. And I think just deep down, we have to recognize and sort of believe and trust that God is at work in the world and our role is not to make things happen, but to align with God and what he is already doing in the world. That there is something truly beautiful about what God is already doing. And our role is not to create reality, but to, to sort of lean in and embrace what God is already doing. The timing of God. But it's not just about timing. I think one of the pa- this passage really speaks into is also whose glory Jesus' brothers are like, hey, show yourself to the world. Make a name for yourself. And I was a disciple of, you know, Harvard rabbi. You know, there's sort of this status feel. And Jesus comes in and is like, you know what? I was taught by the Father. I was sent by the Father. I'm not here to gain personal notoriety. I'm here so that God is honored. 
when I was in, before coming here, I was at a, a, a church up in Washington. And I asked one of the, my fellow pastors to give me some preaching advice. I don't remember what he said for like 90% of the conversation. Uh, some good, some challenging, all that. But I remember what he said last. He said this, deeply unsettling, challenging, convicting. He said this, he's Tony, when you are done teaching, just try not, try to make sure that they don't think about you. Like, oh, you know what? Tony gave a great sermon today. Try and have when they leave, they think about, man, our God is amazing. Our God is so gracious. Our God is so beautiful. And I walked away and I was like, oh, how often I fail at that, right? But well, how beautiful that is. And the thing is, you know, a sermon is nothing compared to our lives and what they teach and proclaim. Our lives are living sermons wherever we go. Your lives speak when you go to work. They speak when you sit here. They speak in your household. And the question I have for you and for me, the deeper challenge is, what do they say? Do they say, I'm awesome? Or do they say, God is amazing? God is faithful. God is good. What does your life say? This is the thing. When God set the Hebrew people free from slavery in Egypt, he didn't set them simply so that they could be free, you know, no longer slaves of Pharaoh. He set them free, discipled them for 40 years in the wilderness so that they could be servants of Yahweh, not simply people that have been set free from slavery. He wanted the people of Israel to be a shining city on a hill that people from all the nations would come in and see and say, oh my gosh, your God is amazing. Instead, what did they do? They sought their own personal glory. They leads to exile. What does God do? He comes in, dies, lives, dies to rescue the people of God, to restore the people of Israel, the church, you and me, and says, you people, you and me, you are a city on a hill. What does your life proclaim? Right, we are living billboards. The question is, what do we say? Now, if you're at this moment thinking, uh-oh, you know, I totally get it. Like, as broken, unhealed creatures, like, this is a tall order to fulfill. The good thing is it's not the end of the story. Right? It's also about who provides for us along the way. Right? Jesus lives within the timing of God, to the glory of God, because he trusts in the provision of God. Right? God the Father provided for the people of Israel as they wandered through the desert. Right? That is why each year they lived in these little tents to say that God is our shelter when the storms of life come. God is the one who will protect and provide for us. I agree. 
I'm glad we worked on that timing. <laughs> awesome. Right? This is part of what they're celebrating at Tabernacles. And the thing is, God didn't just provide. He didn't just guide by fire and cloud at night. Guess what? God also lived in a tabernacle with the people of God as they went about in the wilderness. God wasn't simply distant. He was with them as he provided for them. There's a book called Christ in the Feast of Tabernacles. This guy named Brickner writes this quote. The Feast of Tabernacles was an annual reminder to the people of God that God is the great shepherd who was chosen to tabernacle among them, to protect and bless them wherever they wander and whatever the vagarities of life carried them. What a rich comfort in good times and in bad. Right? And then if we step back to the whole arc of the Gospel of John, what do we see? God does not allow his people just to wander lost right? Failures at glorifying God. What does he do? The word becomes flesh, takes on human flesh, and lives among them. God, the son of God, is at the Feast of Tabernacles, teaching these people about who he is so that they can live for God's glory and not their own. He is there with them. He is there teaching them. He is there guiding them. He is the one who is with them so that they can live God's, live lives that are defined by the timing of God to the glory of God because God is providing what they need. And the thing is, God, by the Holy Spirit, is here today. So whether you come in today feeling like a miserable failure or like you're rocking it, God is here. He is inviting us to line our hearts and our lives no matter what has happened in the last week or the last two weeks or the last month or year. He is saying, I am here with you today. He doesn't say, hey, listen to my timing. Do it for my glory. Go. He speaks to us. He cuddles up next to us on the pew He doesn't say, hey, you know, this is where you're going. So turn right, then left, you know, and sort of give us these directions through a maze. He grabs our hand and he walks with us so that we don't get lost. What we're going to do is I invite the worship team up here. Is we are going to turn to God in worship. We are going to incline our ear to his speaking voice no matter what is going on in our life today, and we're to say, God, speak to us. We want to know your timing. God, we want to know your invitation. God, we want to be people whose lives sing of you and not just our resumes. So God, we ask in this moment that you would speak to us. God, we ask that you would come near to us. God, I'm pretty confident that some of us this morning have fallen in our faces And we are wondering what to do. And God, we ask that you would be the kind of God who leans over and grabs us by the hand. It's like, my child, I love you. I will never leave nor forsake you. And the truth is, God, you will transform us from the inside out. God, we want to know your provision. 
that we may sing of your glory. God, we want to know of your goodness that we could bring you honor. God, we want to hear your speaking voice that we can follow you with all of our hearts. And God, as we sing this song, will you remind us who we are? God, that we are your children and you are our Father. God, speak to us that we may know you, that we may love you, that all of our breath and all of our days would bring you glory today and forevermore.